Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to another episode of the Storybox podcast, where I, your esteemed host, Jay Phantom, has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox amazing stories from incredible people twice a week. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the story box and hear more about our guest today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Story Box podcast. It is episode 43 this time and I have a very special guest for you on the show. Her name is Dr. Holly Richmond. Now if you don't know who Dr. Holly is, she is a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist, and licensed marriage and family therapist. This unique combination of professional credentials enables her to focus on clients' cognitive processes as well as their somatic body-based health. Dr. Holly is one of North America's leading sex therapists, serving women, men, couples, gender-diverse individuals for relationship and sexual issues. Dr. Holly has been featured on the New York Times, WebMD, NBC, Netflix, InStyle, Vice, PopSugar, MHM, uh, The Oprah Magazine. She's been featured in Cosmopolitan, Forbes, Glamour, Men's Health, Women's Health, CNN, um, Wired, Venture Best, Shape, you name it. She is a highly sought-after individual uh, and for good reason. She is quite intelligent, quite smart, and she knows exactly what she's talking about. And I was really privileged, I should say, to actually get to speak with her and talk about all things uh, relating to sexual health issues with trauma. Uh, We also talk about uh, justice and achieving justice for sexual abuse victims. Can we actually achieve it? What is love? Is love important for having sex? Uh, Is intimacy necessary? What is intimacy and, and the importance of that? with love versus sex, education and sex. So do you need to be educated in order to have sex or is it just a primal instinct instinct that we just go for? Uh, porn and relationships, that's a very important one that you all need to hear and Dr. Holly's advice on that. What age do you need to be in order to be educated about sex? So Dr. Holly gives her advice on that. Should we at a young age, should young people at a young age be watching porn? She shares more insight into that. How many years does it actually take to become a sexologist or sex therapist? The challenges involved with being a sexologist, the lessons that Dr. Holly has learned over the years. Dr. Holly has actually had more more than three careers. Being a sexologist is her third career, so we dive a little bit deeper into that. And do we know the root cause of why a person will go and rape another person? 
So these are just some of the topics that we cover in this episode of the Story Box. We, we dive deep and I'm really glad we did because Dr. Holly is very, very wise and very smart and she was able to answer uh, all the questions that I threw at her. And uh, anyway, guys, I'm going to be quiet now because this is an awesome episode, so I want you guys to get a lot out of it. So without me going on and on and on, let's dive into the Story Box and hear Dr. Holly's story. Welcome so uh, much to the Storybox podcast, Dr. Holly. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Jay. And again, thank you for getting up early or staying up very late, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Dr. <laughs> Holly. I've been Great. looking forward to this conversation for quite some time now. And I do. We, I know we did have to rearrange our schedules a little bit, but we're here now, which is the main thing. Uh, I'm, I'm excited once again, but before we get stuck into, I guess, this your backstory and, and why you do what you do. I have one question that I love asking people and that is, what is your definition of success? That's, that's a fantastic question. It's really um, day-to-day happiness and almost happiness in the present moment instead of always projecting out in the future. So for me, it's staying present, being able to be happy in that moment. Mm. Um, I'm just like, this has been my work lately of not, attaching happiness to financial success. Of course, money is important, but it's, I've been looking more at like, what is it? What do I want my life to look like? Not how much money do I want to make? Mm. Where do you think this idea of success came from for you? Was it a gradual thing over time or was there sort of a catalyst moment somewhere in your life that sort of made you realize this is success for me? Yeah, that's, that's a good question too. Um, I, I think like many people have had a lot of money at certain points of my life and not so much money at certain points of my life. So, um, I just celebrated my 50th birthday. Oh, wow. So, you um, look yeah. At all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, I think now from, you know, this position, looking back, I can't say the most happiness was tied to the most money. Certainly like not even close. So, um, it's just, it's really taking it all in that collective approach. What does happiness mean to me? Um, you know, I have children now, like it's just, it's a, it's a bigger picture than instead of being focused on one thing. Mm, that's a good answer. Now I, w- yeah. I want to get into, I guess, your history. Did you always want to be a sexologist? And, and obviously the big question is what does a sexologist do? Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is no. Um, I didn't, um, this is my third career. So I'll tell you about the other two, but this is my third career. And I think this is the one that's going to stick for sure because I love it. Um, so for me, a sex therapist, uh, from my perspective and, and here in the States, you have to have some kind of qualifying degree. So whether it's a master's or a PhD in psychology. So I got a PhD in somatic psychology, which means, uh, body psychology. So I pay as much attention to what my clients are telling me as to body language, symptoms, how those symptoms are presenting somatically or physiologically. Mm. And then I added on, I layered on the certificate in sex therapy. So um, I do still just do psychology counseling. So anxiety, depression, um, OCD, things like that. But most of my work is focused around relationships and healthy sexuality. Wow. And was it, was it hard to get the degree? Well, how many, how many years, how many years does it take to actually get a degree in in sexology or 
Yeah. So all in, um, so the beginning of my master's until the end of my PhD and the sex therapy certification was six and a half years. What? <laughs> yeah. That is a long yeah. time. And you said this is your third career. This what, is. what were the yeah. other two and what made um, you go into this? Yeah. So that's a bit of a story. So the first one I, you can probably see me flushing. I get embarrassed because I, I don't love to talk about it. Um, oh. And not many people know this. I started modeling when I was 15 and a half. So I was a professional model um, in New York and in London from 15 and a half until um, I went back for my bachelor's to college at 19, but still did it a little bit through college Mm. Um, and then went into magazine publishing. So I was an editor and a writer for 14 years for women's magazines, men's magazines. I was the West Coast fashion editor for Seventeen magazine. So did all just kind of lifestyle, beauty, fashion, things like that. Um, and then the psychology has been my third career. So were you quite high up with the magazine editing? It, it was, I, I worked for myself. So I started my wow. own company when I was 29. I've literally worked for myself since I was 29 years old um, and freelanced. So yep. I did okay. I did okay. But then remember the 2008 um, yep. economic collapse. So what I was making for print journalism, all of a sudden those rates just got cut yep. like crazy. So that was a precipitating factor for me going back. But more so than that, it was just that I was kind of done writing about fashion, beauty, health, fitness, celebrity profiles. Like it it sounds great. And there were aspects of it that were great, but I literally remember sitting at my desk one morning and I got an an article assignment from my editor on lip lip gloss. Mm. And this was probably like the 12th article I had written on lip gloss in my career. And I was just like, if I have to write one more article about lip gloss, I'm going to lose my damn mind. Like it's just going to be over. Wow. So so I started making the change. So that's interesting because of all the things you decided to choose, you went into this path of, I guess, as a sex therapist, mm-hmm. which is very, very interesting to me at least because it's a very, very, uh, it's a topic that a lot of people love talking about, but they're very, very closed off to it at the same time, if that makes sense. So it's kind yeah. of like very nerve-wracking for a lot of people to open up about their their sexual relationships and, and intimacy and all that sort of stuff. So why did you choose being a sex therapist? Yeah. And I when I started my my master's in clinical psych, I this was not on my mind at all, really. Um the direction, the the seed was planted. But so, so Jay, when I got the lip gloss article, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot do this anymore. I need to do something bigger picture. Mm. I started um, teaching at a girl's correctional facility in Southern California. I had read a book that literally changed my life. It was called True Notebooks by Mark Salzman. And he Mm. went into boys detention facilities in, in the LA area and taught creative writing. And it just, it changed his life. It changed the boy's life. Um, and it just felt so important for me to do that. So I found a position taught once or twice a week for a couple of years and then decided to, to get my master's in clinical psychology. The sex therapy piece really was born out of that work with, with the girls in the prison system. Um, as they were writing to me, they were just writing story after story of sexual abuse, sexual assault, gang rape. Um, and they would write it like, Uh, I was leaving school. I got jumped by my brother's gang. His friend raped me. And then I went and met my friend at the 7-Eleven. 
just like, you know, boom, 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 like very little affect attached to it just because it was kind of normalized in their life. And it was devastating to me. And I realized I didn't have the tools. Like I was just teaching creative writing. I didn't have the tools to really help. Um, so in graduate school, I chose to do my 3000 hours at a rape crisis center. Wow. So that's really, um, that was the beginning of this. That sounds like a massive challenge and quite eye opening to me. I mean, yeah, it it's was. such an emotional turmoil, turmoil experience, having, having to hear someone go through that. And then they're telling you it's kind of normalized in their life. Right. So how does someone actually help? a person get over that? I mean, that seems like a massive hurdle to get across. It it is. Um, And I think one of the lessons I learned as a younger therapist was I was trying to help them get over it. Mm. And you never can. Like for most people who experience any kind of sexual trauma of that nature, there's no getting over it. It's a getting through it seeing um, how you might come out stronger on the other side, the gifts you can give to other people, really taking the judgment off yourself. Mm. Um, it's amazing. Um, and this is not just about women, but how often the the survivor herself or himself gets blamed. Mm. And I think with the Me Too movement, we're starting to say, hold on a minute. It's not the survivor's fault. Like we really start need to start putting the blame where it belongs, which is on the perpetrators. Mm. So I hope there's been a little bit of a sea change with that, but it really is just... So many survivors are like, oh, I shouldn't have been in that neighborhood. Why did I get so drunk? Mm. Um, The only reason people get raped is because there was a rapist present, right? You know, most people who would see a young drunk girl would help her. Mm. Mm. Exactly. So it's just giving that perspective. Yeah, that's good. In in your perspective, and having done a lot of sessions with a lot of different people, I'm curious to know, in in your opinion, what do you think causes someone – to rape another person? Oh my gosh. It's, it's almost always about power and control, mm. but we have to examine the sexual lens because if it was just about power or control, they could beat them up. They could rob them. Right. Mm. But it's, it's a sexual assault, which by its very nature is more intrusive. It's bodily, it's mind and it's body. Mm. Um, you've probably heard this phrase hurt people, hurt people. Yep. So a lot of times perpetrators have been sexually abused or assaulted in their past. And then that change just continues on and on and on. Um, and that's not an excuse. We all have free will. We all know the difference between right and wrong. Um, again, I think societally we're really learning to put the blame where it belongs and um, perpetrators are now Mm. in a lot of ways getting what they deserve. Weinstein, for example, you know, in prison now. So it's finally, I feel like it's finally, we're getting the results that we want. Mm. Why do you think it's taken so long in in your opinion for society to actually get on board with, okay, this needs to actually change. We need to do something about this. There are, because it's almost like, when a woman comes out and says that I've been sexually abused by a man, where's the evidence? Are right. you are you going to believe who who are you going to believe? So there's always that question of it's it's questionable doubt, really. Right. So how do you know if someone has actually been sexually abused? 
That's a great question. And I don't think we ever can. Um, mm. I can tell you like the rates of false reporting are under 5%. So I think the patriarchy, I'm just going to put it at that. The powers that be love to say, oh, it's probably a false accusation because she wants money because of this and that. The research shows us that's a very small amount. Mm. And in the he said, she said, many times the he said is in a much higher position of power or money. Um, and it's hard to prove these things, right? So, mm. and over 85% of survivors know their perpetrator. So let's say that she went on a date with him and mm. let's say she went back to his room. You know, what's the jury going to do with it? Yeah, but you said you were, you, you know, you went back to his room. So it's really, it's not easy. Um, but I think the collective voice of the Me Too movement helps people see like, really, we need to believe women. We need to believe men who have been assaulted. There's really no good reason to press charges if you weren't. It's a hell of a battle. Like it's mm -hmm. horrible for any survivor that's ever been through the legal system trying to, to fight this. You would not sign up for this unless, unless this was the truth. No. Again, back to Me Too, it, that one, they got the guy because there were so many voices. In yeah. most cases of sexual assault, though, or date rape, there's only two voices. He said, she said, or she said, she said, he said, he said. Um, and you're absolutely right. It is hard to be proven not guilty. I mean, guilty. <clears throat> Which yeah. I've been seeing, I don't know if you saw as well, but that young boy, young black kid that was shot in broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why they got justice was because of the the lawyer went online and started publicizing. So I'm starting to think, well, is there power in numbers and, and social media to get the right kind of justice for something like that? It seems to me that it has worked, but um, may, we'll never know. <laughs> Hopefully it starts yeah. to, to really go in the right direction. Yeah. I want to yeah, shift, that's a great thought, though. shift the, the conversation to more, mm -hmm. more about uh, this topic of love and what is, is love important for sex? So what, what do you believe yeah. about that? Yeah. So I'm just going to wrap up that conversation. Um, so my work with survivors was hugely important and I got to a point where, um, you know, I cannot do this 24 seven. Like there's, I, I love my work with survivors. It's probably 50% of the work I do now, but the sex therapy certification let me treat, um, arousal problems, erectile dysfunction, pain during sex, mm. fetishes, couples, problems, low desire, all of these things. So like more of that holistic view of human sexuality rather than than just through the lens of uh, sexual trauma. Mm. So love, oh my gosh, love and sex. Can you say that question again? Ask me that question one more time. So what is love <clears throat> and is love important for sex? Oh my gosh, what is love? Well, we know love is not a static state. It's not... I don't think it's, it, it, it's something you feel. It's really, you can't quantify it. It's behavior, it's feeling. Um, it's, it's all of those, those physiological cues we get. Mm. Um, it's putting someone at least on the same level as yourself or sometimes even above yourself um, and, still, and still having that piece of self-care. Is it necessary for sex? 100% no. But from everything I've heard and everything I've experienced in my life, when it's present during sex, it makes sex that much better. Mm, mm. It's an interesting, interesting thought. Because if we were un to unpack love, 
I've been told all my life that in order for you to have the best sex you've ever had, you have to fall in love with that person because there's a deeper understanding of them. It's a deeper connection. So that's interesting that you said that in order to have sex, you don't really need to have love. It's very fascinating. Um, yeah. To, so how does that play for is intimacy a similar thing or is in, in, intimacy a difference with love and sex? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I want to say intimacy, love, and sex have to be defined by the individual themselves. Mm. So how I define it is going to be different than how you define it. Um, so sex, we're really pulling back on that definition of penetration, you know, anything for a lot of us, it's like, oh, it's only sex if there's penetration involved. And now, at least through the sex therapy lens, sex is from start to finish, foreplay to aftercare, all of these things, mm-hmm. um, which is part of intimacy, which can be part of love. Uh, intimacy, I think intimacy, if you, you know, you probably heard this too, if you break that word, word down, it's into me see, right? <laughs> It's, it's like a looking, like you see me, I see you. It's about more than this physical body. It's about our passion, our expression, who we are as people, what we bring to the table, what we bring to the bedroom. So mm. intimacy, I think, is compassion, connection, being able to communicate well, and feeling cared for. Mm. So how does someone actually... I guess, have good sex in the first place? Like, is it that this education, does that need to be involved? Or are we just primal instincts designed to just, you know, go at it in in, um, very raw terms? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great question. Uh, It can work that way. It works much better with sex education. Mm. Um, And and I do, I want to just back up a little bit and say for some people, they would only be able to have good sex if they were in love with the person. Mm. For other people, they can only have good sex if they barely know the person. Right. Because there's a level of vulnerability when you have sex with someone you love versus having sex with a stranger. Like, I don't really care what you think of me. So some people need to have that no vulnerability space because it's Mm. just sex is too much for them um, and they prefer it that way. Um, Yeah. Back to the sex education since, you know, the advent of porn really being online and so accessible, Mm. we've seen a, a downtick in sex education and an uptick in what young people especially think sex should be. Um, And they think it's much more performance-based than pleasure-based. So Mm. so that's the duality that we're working with. Porn is all about performance. These are literally actors. They're lit well. The film is edited and cut. They've just, you know, they've got all the bells and whistles versus pleasure is not performance-based. It's just what feels good to you, what feels good to your partner, which is going to be different than what feels good to her friend, what feels good to me, what feels good to my partner. Right. Mm. So like pleasure is a very personal experience. Mm. I'll I'll get to the porn epidemic in a moment because I feel like that is a huge problem in, in society today. So do you, what age do you believe is the appropriate age to learn everything that needs to, they, they need to know about sex? From the sex education point of view, it should probably start around 13 in the schools. I don't know what's happening in Australia now, but we we basically don't have it here in the U.S. anymore. And if it is, it's just like 
basic anatomy. It's about the egg. It's about semen. It's about periods. It's about condoms. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's yeah. about it. It's a lot of don't do this. It's nothing about pleasure. So why do you think it's a lot of don't do this? And I have an, I have another curious question. It just came back to me actually. Mm-hmm. So this idea of connection and and sex, like we mentioned before, in order to like for some people they to um they just want to have sex and not feel attached to that person. Is that actually mm-hmm. possible though? Because when you have sex, it's like two people coming together as one. It's a very deep. So can that person like not fall in love when they actually have sex, or is that not possible? Oh, it's absolutely possible. And that's what, you know, the sex industry (laughs) thrives on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's about having pleasure for pleasure's sake. Um, Of course, being kind and compassionate, whatever your partner wants, like having the agreement, be explicit about what both people want out of the exchange, whether it is just sex or whether there's a deeper meaning to it and something after that. Mm. Because when I was in school, I was um, I was exposed to porn at age twelve. Now that was a it was a huge curious thing for me because I was interested in the human body, specifically the female body, and I was like, okay, well this is this is fascinating, and it drew my interest into it. And nowadays we're seeing with the advent of I guess uh, websites, the whole bit, it's been it's easily accessible for a lot of young people and in schools nowadays they're they're not really educated properly on it here in australia that is uh on proper sex and how to perform and intimacy and the whole bit and they get their education now from porn and so we have a lot of all this performance anxiety as Mm -hmm. a result of it we have a lot more sexual abuse because Literally, porn is violent. There is a lot of violence associated with porn. And it's it's sort of like they have all these issues that stem from watching porn. Because I know, because I had the same problem grow, growing up. But then when I, when I learned to get over it and transition my thought process differently, it changed, changed my perspective, changed everything for me. So what strategies, in your opinion, would you give to a young person that is struggling with porn at the moment and needs help? And why should we not watch porn? Oh, that's a tough question. There's so many things I want to say right now. Um, <laughs> for for a young person, like if we're t- talking a 13, 14-year-old, yeah, they, they probably shouldn't be watching porn, but we know they are. Uh, I think some of the most recent research said nine or 10 years old is the yeah. first exposure to porn, which is which is shocking. So again, it comes back to that education piece, and that now has to be on the parents. So I think if it's, if we're going to pull away from porn for these very young people, the onus is on the parents to have those difficult conversations with, with your tweens before you want to, before you think they want to, but you have to, to tell them, 
yes, about pregnancy, yes, about pleasure, about what they can expect from their bodies, about how to treat their partner. All of those things are incredibly important. So not pathologizing any aspect of sexuality, but kind of like pumping up the idea of pleasure and connection. And this can be about love or it can just be about pleasure, but you and your partner need to be on the same page about that. Mm. So how do we deal with performance anxiety for someone? Yeah, that's, I, I work with that a lot. Um, so again, like with men with erectile issues, we need to know, is that problem uh, organic or is it psychogenic? So the organic would be, there's a physiological cause. The psychogenic would be more the, the performance anxiety or an anxiety related issue. There's a lot of ways to deal with that. So if I'm working with someone who does feel like they have compulsive porn use, we work to titrate that down, help them use their imagination more, um, maybe even reading erotica. But I love, I just, I love the power of the imagination because it's better than any porn could ever be. Um, and we know masturbation is normal. It's natural. It's actually good for men. If you're not having sex, um, reduces, you know, masturbation and ejaculation reduces rates of, of prostate cancer. Um, so I would never want to pathologize masturbation, but the porn use for very young people can certainly be problematic, but it's just, again, what's real, what's real sex and what's produced sex, right? With this idea of, I guess, masturbation is good for men. I'm curious to know, because like for arousal and that oftentimes men do turn to porn if they're not having sex as a way to sort of stimulate and pleasure themselves to actually get to that um, erectile state or mm -hmm. the finished state at least. So what would you say to that man and why is it dangerous to actually, or is it dangerous actually to watch porn if you're not having sex to actually pleasure your own self? Yeah, I, I don't think it's dangerous at all to watch porn um, if you're not having sex or if you are having sex. I have so many couples that use porn together just as, as another interesting tool. Mm. Um, porn is only, I mean, porn is in and of itself isn't dangerous. It's how we use it, right? Like porn just lives on the internet. I don't think there's anything unless someone is being abused in it or unless underage people are in it. But for the most part on the larger websites, Pornhub, YouPorn, they're really monitoring and making sure everything is at least with 18 and above people. Um, the problem with porn comes with compulsivity. So if someone is masturbating so much that it's getting in the way of other healthy aspects of their life, are they showing up late for work? Are they not going to work? Can they not maintain a healthy relationship because they only feel comfortable touching themselves now and are, mm. aren't comfortable with a, another person? So those are the dangers. Um, and when I, again, when I work with this, I just encourage the person to use their imagination more. I'll set them up on a whole protocol. It would take probably eight to 10 weeks, but I've had great results. So it's not about no porn. It's just about finding a level of porn that really helps you live your healthiest life. Hmm. It's interesting because why, why is porn not bad in that, in that respect? Does it just, does it like, cause I know for some couples and I've, I've spoken with some couples, they feel almost like the man or woman is actually cheating with another person when they're mm -hmm. either watching it or, uh, pleasuring themselves to another another human being that's on a screen. So it's kind of a form of cheating. Do you see it that way? 
Um, I don't see it that way, but a lot of my clients do. And it's something mm-hmm. I work with all the time. So it's really like breaking that down. And if the couple comes to an agreement, like no porn, then, then it should be no porn. And I want to help them move towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely have a ton of couples that watch porn together and it's a huge erotic part of their sex lives. Mm. So again, it's just in how you view it personally and how the couple uses it individually or together. Mm. So this idea of why do you think that people turn to other sources of, I guess, arousal, satisfaction, or orgasmic experiences if they can't actually get pleasure with, with one person? Novelty. Mm. <laughs> it's just about novelty. Novelty is really one of the seats of human desire. Um, we crave what we don't know. We crave newness and freshness. After 30 or 40 years with the same person, that can be hard to cultivate unless, again, you're really using your imagination and working hard on making the relationship new. So it's just continuing to grow with each other. Mm. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, porn. I don't want to say solves that problem, but it seems like an easy, you know, a fairly easy fix to the problem. Mm. Um, but some people use video games. Some people watch Netflix all day long. Um, you know, we, we don't hear anybody talking about Netflix addiction. Um, but it, to me, it's like any kind of external distraction that's a threat to the relationship needs to be discussed. It's just porn is easy to pathologize. And I 100% understand some of the reasons that you're concerned about. Um, but it can also be used for pleasure. Mm. It's in, it's a very interesting thought because I've had some very fascinating conversations with um, other sexologists as well, and we've sort of dived into this this thought of why I guess porn is an epidemic today and why a lot of people actually go to it. And one of the one of the main things is because it it is it is attractive to a lot of people, and if they can access it for free, it's sort of like why not. You know, like where's the harm? And they don't really see the neurological pathways that it right. it, it changes. It it I know for me, and what it did for me was it made me uh, feel like less of a man. It made me think that sex was a certain way when it really wasn't, and it made me, I guess, um, just the performance aspect. I was sort of it, uh, wanting it to be something that I had seen, but then it just impacted the creativity aspect, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. which was, which was um, hard for me to sort of get rid of that, that barrier and actually use my creativity, which when I did, it was, it was much better for, for my own personal life. And I felt better as a result because mm-hmm. I wasn't going to some other external source. And yeah. So um, anyway, have you had any, I, yeah, any, I love um, your stories. Yeah. It, it's like, I, I was just unhappy. Like I, I've kept going back to this, this source that wasn't, it didn't make me feel good after, if that made sense. Like it just, mm-hmm. it was like this repetition of constant feeling like I needed to use porn as a way to, make me feel good if it made mm-hmm. sense make me feel like a man but it or educate me but it wasn't wasn't that at all so it's just an interesting thought process with this whole idea of porn and i appreciate you sharing your thoughts on yeah. it um yeah yeah because i like i like hearing 
the different perspectives and then people can make a choice whether or not they want to believe which side. So have you had any challenges or difficulties being a sexologist? No, I, I don't think so. So far, so good. It's just, it's been, I mean, some days are tough, um, high conflict couples. That's always, you know, those are always hard to work with because I want people to be happy and to leave feeling good. Some relationships can't, you know, there's no saving them. So the right thing, the best thing is, is for, for people to separate and that's hard. Um, but there's really so far nothing, nothing too much yet. And yes, the, the porn is a very divisive issue. So that's, it's something that I'm dealing with all the time. Um, but I think where you started when you were introducing me, like my sex positive approach, all sex mm. is good sex, as long as it's consensual and pleasurable for some people that's inclusive of porn. For some people, it's not your story is very like, it's just spot on for, for what can happen and what can go wrong. So again, it's, I wish you had had the education at 11 or 12 that, Hey, porn is just a movie. Like Mm. that's literally not real. If you want to watch it, just like you would watch star Wars or anything else for the entertainment value. Great. But do not translate that into the real, into real life or real relationships because it won't work. Mm. Where did you come up with that? That saying all sex is good sex. If it's yeah. Consensual and pleasurable. Uh, I heard it at a conference and I wish I know exactly who I heard it from, but, um, part of my sex therapy training is continued educate, continuing education credits all the time. So mm. I go to an annual conference with mm. someone very smart there, but wow. it just helps, you know, because people come to me with pretty strong fetishes that they're feeling horrible about. And if we can, if I could just like break that down under the umbrella of, is it consensual and is it pleasurable? Then in some ways it can let them off the hook. If they're just feeling bad bad about it like they're hurting someone or something you know then we can i can check those two boxes and help them feel better and then again like porn pull it out when you want to pull it out but it's not a must it's a choice everything about sexuality should be a choice mm, that's very very interesting i, li- I like that yeah. so i i do want to be mindful of your time so i do have a few mm-hmm. more questions for you yeah in terms of creating a healthy relationship what are the the musts that you need to create a, a healthy relationship with someone it's a wonderful question. Uh, appreciation, I think, should be at the top. Uh, if far too often we take our partners for granted. I love daily appreciation. So knowing, does your partner love to, to hear you look fantastic today? Or does your partner need to hear, thank you so much for cooking breakfast this morning? Um, does your partner need a little gift surprise in their pocket? You know, what, what does your partner respond to? So really learning how they communicate and appreciating them for it. Mm. Um, the other thing, of course, is talking. Um, one of the biggest pieces that's still missing with, with healthy sexuality is good communication about it. So I know for a fact couples have better sex when they can communicate openly about it. Mm. So I would say the appreciation and communication are probably two of the that are top on my list. Mm. They're good. I like those. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of, sorry, in, in terms of, um, I guess if you could go back and when this all started for you and, and tell yourself one thing, what would you tell yourself and why? Oh my gosh. Uh, to trust the process because I really, I feel like I came into this with, without my North star at all. You know, it was just like, okay, the girls in prison led to a master's in clinical psych, led to the sex therapy certification. I had no idea 
back then that I would be doing what I'm doing now and the amazing people that I'm getting to meet um, and the companies I've been able to work with and how women's pleasure in particular has just really come to the forefront of my career and the message Mm -hmm. that I want to get out there. Um, The way survivors' lives are changing because of the Me Too movement. No one could have seen all of that. And I just, I feel so blessed to be a part of it. So I think when I get anxious and I project out into the future and imagine all of the possible things that could go wrong, it's just to dial myself back and say, trust the process. Mm, That's good. Uh, Two more questions for you, if you don't Mm -hmm. mind. What are some things that you are passionate about outside of being a therapist? Oh, that's, oh, um, I, full disclosure, I have two young boys. Um, so a lot of my non-work time is family time, but just, I love being active. I've been an athlete my whole life. So still love, love doing outdoorsy things, love time with my family. Um, we live just outside of New York city. Now there's just, there's always something to do. So really just taking in different cultures and different people, um, traveling when we can. I told you, you know, everybody in my household is an Australian. So, so we love getting to Australia when we can. So, yeah, it's just for me, I crave, I crave novelty a lot. So I love doing, being able to do different things. Mm, That's cool. My last question for you is you've reached the ripe old age of a hundred (laughs) and your friends have all created a mixtape for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. And they show it to you on your hundred birthday. What do you want that mixtape to show and say? Oh, that it's not too late, that you're not too old. Mm, yeah, I, I, that's definitely been a concern of mine because it's my third career. And, and you know, I didn't even start the psychology part of my journey until my late 30s. Mm. Um, I always have that sense, like I came to this too late. I'm, I'm too old, you know, to do this. Um, mm. We live in such a world of commodification of youth and beauty and all of those things so just leaning into the wisdom and the experience that i have Mm, that's amazing i feel like that is a great way to sort of end that conversation i feel like i could talk to you for ages (laughs) i have so many more questions we have to do this again sometime but thank you so much dr holly for coming on the storybox podcast sharing your your journey with us as well and also your advice really do appreciate it oh thank you so much for having me and yes anytime i'm happy to rejoin thank you I don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it'll go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.